0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. What a comforting song. A comforting song in that... It grabs the truths of Scripture and pulls them together. Things like Jesus saying, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you and turn away from you. Things like the Apostle Paul reminding us that the God who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. He will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Or the Apostle Paul's words in Romans, that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What a comfort. In Revelation chapter 11, we see an interesting picture. A beautiful picture, really. And some some difficult things that we're going to have to try to understand. In the midst of our study in the Revelation, we are seeing that God is pouring out His judgment upon the unbelieving world. And as I've stated over the last 26 or 27 weeks in preaching through this book, I don't believe that this includes God removing His people from the earth at that time. But He will strengthen us so that we will endure it. And so those truths, those things that that we just sung about, those scriptures that I just referenced, they come to, to rest upon passages like this and help us to understand it and appropriate it so that we can be comforted by it. In Revelation chapter 11, I'm only going to deal with a few verses today, and I'll explain why in a moment, but what I'd like to do is I'd like to read from uh, verse 1 all the way through verse 13, maybe even 14, um, just so that we can see the broader context, and then we'll back up and we'll look at the few verses that I've mentioned. So if you have your copy of God's Word open, would you look as I read the text? And this is John the apostle of the Lord, receiving this vision from Christ, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city of God, for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb, to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God, to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word that you have revealed amazing things to us in it. You have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed us to ourselves. You have revealed your plan of redemption and salvation through Christ our Lord, your Son. And you have even given us things like this as direction for how we are to live our lives as believers in this world, though persecution and suffering will result. From our desire to be faithful to you. Lord, I pray that in the midst of trying to understand the difficult symbols and images of this vision, I pray that you would give us wisdom. I pray that your word would speak powerfully, that you would focus our hearts and our minds and our lives in such a way that we can receive from you what you have given with understanding, and we can go from this place. With confidence. So have your way with us now. Empower me as your servant to preach your word faithfully. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now one of the things that I've learned while studying the Revelation over these last 20 plus weeks is just how much the Old Testament is found upon the pages of this last book of the Bible. And I've been trying to point that out along the way Um, I haven't pointed out all of the references, but with the turn of every page, we see Old Testament references jumping out at us. And I personally have just been amazed at how much this book that is about the future hope of God's people is looking back to the truths that have been revealed in the past. Isn't that interesting? This book about the future is completely reliant on what has been said and revealed in the past. The imagery and the symbolism of the Exodus can be seen throughout the seven seals and the seven trumpets, which we've been studying in these last couple of weeks. The words and experiences of the prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and uh, Jeremiah, these words and these images show up over and over again. But here in Revelation 11, there is one particular prophet whose ministry comes into focus more than all the rest. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that at the end of this vision in chapter 10, John the Apostle was given a scroll to eat. This mighty angel had descended from heaven. Uh, which I explain that I believe that's a reference to Christ Himself. He, he descended from heaven with the Word of God, the scroll in His hand, and he, he gave it to John. He told John to eat this little scroll that was opened in His hand, which is a reference back to Jesus opening the seals. And, and John is supposed to eat this. It's going to be sweet, and then it's going to become bitter. It's going to be sweet as he partakes of the Word of God revealed to him, but it's going to produce bitterness as he preaches it to an unbelieving World and all of that imagery is a reference back to the prophet Ezekiel. Everything there is a reference back to the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter two, Ezekiel was received a scroll from a in the midst of a vision, and he was to eat that scroll. And that scroll was filled with the word of God, and he he was told that it would be sweet, but that it would sour in his stomach, and it would produce bitterness specifically, the Word of God that came to him was going to be a comfort to him, but he was going to preach it to the nation of Israel. And at that particular time, the nation of Israel was in a state of idolatry, and they were not going to receive the Word of God well. It was going to produce bitterness in them. Now, Ezekiel, you may know, Ezekiel was taken into exile he was a prophet of God in the nation of Israel, but he was taken into exile in Babylon. And as he was there, he saw these visions from God. He saw one vision while he was sitting on the, the river, the, the Kebar Canal, and he's sitting there and he, and he sees this vision, and it's this vision of the throne of God. Y'all, have you ever read this? Where there's these wheels that are turning and then there's the throne of God and it's just this majestic vision. And the whole vision is telling um, Ezekiel that God in his glory, Glory is in Babylon. Why would God in His glory be in Babylon? God's throne is in the temple in Jerusalem. And Ezekiel is realizing that God has left the temple in Jerusalem. And His glory is not represented there in that idolatrous place. His glory is now with His people, even though they're in exile. Now, that imagery it's going to help us understand Revelation chapter 11. So Ezekiel sees this vision of God leaving the temple. His glory comes to another place, and it's because of all the idolatry that was taking place there. The the Israelites were actually mingling the worship of Yahweh with pagan gods inside the temple. And so God left the temple. And then later on, you know, Ezekiel has other visions. He has the visions of the Valley of Dry Bones. Do you all remember that one? where he comes out, and, and there's no hope for Israel, right? They're, they're, they're gone. They've, the temple at that point had been destroyed, um, and, and God's glory had left. The people were in exile, and, and Ezekiel's weeping over the future of God's people, and God says, oh, by the way, come here. Prophesy over all of this dust. Prophesy over these dry bones, and I will make them live, right? So Ezekiel saw God resurrect in a vision his people out of dust, and then later on in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48, as, as the temple is destroyed and, and is there a future place for God to dwell with his people again, God gives Ezekiel another vision. And it's a vision of a temple, an idealized temple, a temple that was never physically built. And it was a temple that an angel came down and measured it, and it was this massive temple, and it was God's way of uh, telling Ezekiel the prophet, I've got this. I'm going to create a place where I and my people can dwell together again. Now, Ezekiel saw all these things in a vision, and many of the visions that Ezekiel saw show up here in Revelation 11 as symbols of how God has fulfilled his promises through the church. This chapter is filled with Old Testament imagery and details, and these Old Testament imagery and details are so important that we're going to slow down. Now I've said over the last couple of weeks that I wanted to cover some ground. I I preached an entire chapter in one sermon last week. But the details are so important that we are going to slow down, and I'm just going to focus on two verses this morning. What we're going to see in this chapter, as it's been read, is we're going to see the temple of God take center stage. And we need to understand that. What is going on? What temple are we talking about? We're also going to see these witnesses come to uh, reality and they begin to do miracles and they begin to prophesy and they are killed and then they are called up to heaven in a cloud. What is all of that about? We're going to see this beast from the bottomless pit come forward and begin to persecute the people of God. These these witnesses from God. And all of these things, they're very exciting. They're very important. But I believe that they are also very highly misunderstood. So this morning, we're going to slow down. We're going to focus on two verses and a couple of themes along the way. And my hope and my goal this morning is to build a biblical theological understanding of what we're seeing here. Okay? So I also want to give you a heads up. This is going to be my last sermon to preach for about six weeks. Um, I am about to go on a, an elder-approved and planned sabbatical. Um, I'll be traveling with my family uh, on vacation, but then also to go and, and see our extended family Um, The elders are going to step in and they're going to be preaching. Jeff's going to be back in July. He's going to preach through a series on the Messianic Psalms, which I think is going to be outstanding. We will be here for a lot of that time, but I won't be in the pulpit again until the first Sunday in August. But I will make you this promise. When I step back in the pulpit, I'm going to pick up with verse 3. And we'll just keep studying the book together. Yeah. All right. One last thing by way of introduction. Um, As Providence directed, last week Breck covered some of the the same theological concepts that I'm talking about in Revelation 11, and he covered those last week, or at least introduced those last week in his uh, lesson on Psalm 87 when he was focusing in on the concept of Zion, right? and the temple of God. He referenced both of those things. He talked about the temple of God and the city of Zion as they exist in their new covenant form and reality. And he made the claims that I think are absolutely accurate. The temple of God is no longer a brick and mortar building resting on a hill in Jerusalem. The temple is the church. The living body of believers in whom the Spirit of God dwells today. And the city of Zion, that metaphorical city, is no longer a reference to a patch of land that rests within the lines of longitude and latitude. Zion is wherever God's people come together to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Don't forget, it was Jesus who said, You are a city on a hill. So that language that we want to tie to actual physical realities, the New Testament helps us to understand their spiritual connection. And Breck talked about that last week, and all he did was lay a foundation for what I'm going to talk about today. So let's get into the text, and let's look first at the temple of God. John says, Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Now the word then, at the beginning of this verse, is a a way to show us, it helps us to understand that this is a continuation of the vision that began in chapter 10. Uh, The thing that we studied last week about the mighty angel coming down, descending to comfort the church and to recommission John, You're going to take my word. You're going to preach it. It's going to be bitter to the people who hear it. They're going to uh, persecute you. All of that, that vision is continuing in what we're seeing here. In fact, what I believe is that the vision that John receives in chapter 11 is a picture of what it will look like for the church when we do what John and the church were commanded to do in Revelation chapter 10. So we get our recommissioning from God, and here's what it's going to look like. That's the point. That's the purpose of Revelation 11. These images of the temple and the trampling of the outer court and the two witnesses, their death and their resurrection, they're all symbolic descriptions of what we can expect as we pursue faithfulness to the calling of Christ. Now, I'll explain why I believe that as we continue forward. And and I want to start by asking this question. Why does why does John's measuring the temple and the altar and the people, why is that in some way connected to the ministry and mission of the church? Like, that seems to be two separate things, right? Like, what's this temple thing all about? In order to answer the question of, of this image and how, what the temple has to do with the ongoing mission of the church in this age, in order to answer this question, we ha- have to dig deep into Scripture so that we can understand the history and the purpose of the temple to begin with. Now, maybe you already have that. You have a a biblical theological category for the, the, the tabernacle and the temple, but maybe you don't. So what I want to do is I want us to back up, and I want us to think about some things with regard to the temple. If we were to go back to Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, in the days of Jesus, we would see the temple of God dominating the city landscape. And it was absolutely magnificent in that day to the point that it would have drawn our attention and our imagination, right? This amazing thing, this marvel of the ancient Near Eastern world. But if we're really going to understand the focus of the temple and the purpose of the temple, we've got to go back further. In fact, I believe that we have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Let your mind go to the Garden of Eden, The Garden of Eden is the place on earth where God and man can come together and dwell together in fellowship with one another. Within the garden, there are angels. Within the garden, there are creatures. Within the garden, there are trees. And within the garden, there is man, the pinnacle of God's creation, and God Himself comes to dwell there. The Garden of Eden is an incredibly unique place in all of Scripture. But most uniquely, the garden is the place where God and man dwell together. God has his abode in the heavens, the Scriptures tell us. Not Eden. Eden was a place God created for man, and he would come and he would dwell there with man, but God's abode is in heaven. Man's abode is on earth, and and Eden was this unique place where they could come together, where heaven and earth could come together. The Creator and his creatures were able to dwell together in the same space, Because prior to Genesis 3, there was no sin to separate God from his people. There was no sin to to mar anything within creation. But when sin entered the story, what happens to this place where God and man dwell together? It no longer exists. We no longer have access to it. Man is made to leave. Not God, right? Man is made to leave. In fact, man was told, Adam and Eve were told to go east of the garden. They were to go to the east because they could not come back into God's presence. The ability for man to do that was completely lost because of sin. But that changed in time as God spoke to Moses and he gave him instructions on how to create a place on earth where God and man could come back together again. Do you all remember this? It was the tabernacle. The tabernacle represented this new dwelling place for God on earth. It wasn't his home. His home is still in heaven. But this was this place where God could come and he could dwell among his people. And it was a place where man could come back into God's presence. And by the way, man had to come back into God's presence the same way man went out. In order to get out of the garden, they had to go past the trees and not eat of them. In order to go past the, uh, out of the garden, they had to go past the cherubim with the flaming sword, and they had to go to the east. And you might have known this, but the tabernacle was actually associated in such a way that they had to come from the east in a westward direction to get back to God. They had to come past the, the veil and the, the cherubim that was embroidered there, and they would come into the holy place where there were trees, literally almond blossoms on the walls, and there were creatures that were etched upon the walls, and then they could come back into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest, once a year. But they had to come back in the same way they went out. But the tabernacle represented this place upon earth where God and man could now dwell together again. And you might know the history of the tabernacle. The tabernacle gave way to the temple. The temple was designed, and it was, it, was, well, it was King David's design to build a temple. God says, you're not going to build me a temple. Solomon was able to build a temple. Solomon was one of the wealthiest Israelites to ever live, uh, one of the wealthiest men on the planet at that time, and he built this magnificent temple. And you can see videos of this, the reimagined understanding of the the Temple of Solomon. You can see that kind of stuff on YouTube, maybe in some of the books or even study Bibles you have. But the, the Temple of Solomon was absolutely breathtaking. But it didn't last that long. That temple stood for about 350 years, and it was destroyed by the pagan army of Babylon as the people of God were taken into exile in their idolatry and sin. And this happened because of what I mentioned earlier about Ezekiel and the people of God uh, in, incorporating pagan idolatry into their worship of Yahweh. Now, years later, the, the temple was rebuilt, and it was rebuilt during the ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah, the post-exilic prophets. And, and this Tabernacle or This temple that they built was a pale reflection of Solomon's temple. And then later on, several hundred years after that, um, you have the temple of Herod. Herod commissioned the building of an even grander temple, and it was absolutely breathtaking and amazing. And that was the temple that stood in Jerusalem in the days of Jesus. But you know some things about that temple as well, right? If you know your New Testament, then you know that even though the temple was beautiful, Jesus did not think very highly about the religious leaders who were inhabiting that temple. He would go to the temple and he would drive them out and he would rebuke them for their idolatry and for their corruption. They were corrupting not only the teaching of God because they were elevating their teaching over the teaching of God, but they were also corrupting the work that went on within the temple. And Jesus said some pretty, some pretty wild things. He told the people, this is in John 2, he told the people destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. Now, later on, as he prophesies about the future, Jesus does prophesy about the actual destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and he never talks about it being rebuilt. But when he says, if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days, he was talking about his body. In Jesus, the language of the temple reality begins to shift away from brick and mortar to the actual person of Christ himself. Now, if you've never put all of this together, that's why I'm doing it. If you have, well, this is just remedial to you. When Jesus began to talk about the temple, he shifted its focus right uh, the religious leaders were responsible for corrupting the temple jesus began to address those things and even though they crucified him for the things that he said they could not stop god's plan from being accomplished but what was god's plan well god's plan was that his son would come and give his life on the cross to save us from our sins so that we could be reconciled to god not through a temple structure not through that Old Testament sacrificial system, but through the fulfillment of it in Christ himself. And and with that theological reality, the shift in understanding the reality of the temple takes place as well. When Jesus gave his life on the cross, he opened the way for God and man to dwell together without the need of a physical temple. In fact, Jesus Jesus made it clear during his ministry that he was taking the place of the temple. His own body is the place where God and man dwell together. And through Christ, because of Christ, God and man are now reconciled to one another. And that language began to be picked up by the New Testament authors. And the New Testament authors began to teach that the church, the believer, because there was no temple after AD 70, now the church is the new temple of God. Paul taught that since the Spirit of God dwells within us, when we gather together as believers, we are the new temple of God on earth. We are the dwelling place of God among men. I'll give you some Scripture to help you understand this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, You're no longer outside the camp, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord." He's not talking about a physical temple. He's talking about the body of believers, both Jews and Greeks who trust in Christ, are now growing into, in a spiritual sense, the temple of God, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All right, you're not convinced. Okay, let's keep going. Peter. Peter talked about this the same way, and we read it earlier. Peter says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Peter's using construction terminology to help us understand what's going on with the church. God is using us to build his temple on earth. And it's not going to be held together with mortar. We're living stones. I don't know if you've ever seen that language. I hope you have. He goes on and he says, We are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're not convinced? All right, here's more. The writer of Hebrews systematically teaches that the old temple has given way to the new temple. The old system has been fulfilled in the new, and the old covenant has been replaced. by a better covenant, he says. A covenant that's been sealed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A physical temple is no longer necessary because the spiritual temple is better in every way. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. And not just the writer of Hebrews. Here's a, a pretty convincing verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple? and God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Do you know why we're called holy? Because the spirit of God dwells in us. We're also called the temple because the spirit of God dwells in us. This language is all over the New Testament and the point is to say that the new covenant concept of the temple is no longer a physical building in, within a, a patch of land in lines and longitude and latitude it's the church. The Spirit of God dwells in us. The sacrifice of Christ brings us into God's presence. The barriers to God have been removed by Jesus, and we now even have access to His throne. We're invited to come into the Holy of Holies boldly because of what Christ has accomplished. And not only has the New Testament been teaching this, but I've been trying to gently point it out through the Revelation as John is able to come into the presence of God's throne, that's access to him through Christ, the slain lamb that's sitting right there beside the Father. All of the language of the New Testament, as well as the language of the Revelation, is helping us to understand that we are the temple of God. So how does this help us make sense of the command for John to measure the temple? Well, it it helps us to understand what temple God has in mind here. As you might expect, and as you might believe, there are a couple different views on this, right? So there are at least two prominent views on how we should view the temple in this Revelation 11 passage as a literal, physical temple. Uh, There's a, a view known as the Preterist view, that teaches that all of Revelation 11 and the measuring of the temple and the two witnesses and all of that is to be understood for the most part literally and that it is supposed to have happened prior to A.D. 70 when the actual temple of God, Herod's temple, was destroyed. Now, I reject that view mainly because... I don't think that the, the, the book of Revelation was written prior to A.D. 70. I believe and taught months ago that it was written in A.D. 90, and most of the, the new, ta- if not all, of the uh, early church fathers are going to consistently say that the Revelation was written late, not early, which would have met it after the temple was destroyed. So the Preterist views this Revelation 11 as something that happened in the past. Now, then there's the dispensationalist, which is a futurist view. And the dispensationalist interpretation says that it is literal and it is physical, but it's going to happen in the future. The dispensationalist futurist view interprets this passage and says that we should expect a literal temple to be constructed in Jerusalem in the future. And this view says that worshiping those who are worshiping in the temple that are not supposed to be measured in all the different things that are happening here that the ones that are inside the temple near the altar worshiping is a reference to a future remnant of ethnic Jews who are coming back into favor with God, and that the measuring of the temple and the altar is a symbol. I love this. There's a literal, and then there's a symbolic all within one thing. So it, the, the, the temple is literal. The you know, Jews coming back into God's favor is literal. But the measuring of the temple is symbolic, of God's protection over them during the latter days. And some of you might hold that view, right? I've kind of pointed out along the way, it's fine if you hold that view, it falls within the bounds of orthodoxy. I just don't hold to that view myself. The dispensationalist view is the prevailing view among many evangelicals today, but I believe that it goes against the New Testament understanding that I just laid out for you about the shift in our understanding of the temple of God because of Christ. I think the dispensationalist gets, dispensationalist gets that wrong. What Christ did was he made, rendered completely unnecessary a temple structure and a sacrificial system that went with it. Here's one of the commentators that I read. His name is Joel Beakey, and I think he summarizes it well. He says, the temple was a place for sacrificing animals to atone for sin, But Christ's death put an end to all those sacrifices. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And this signified that God was putting an end to the symbol, meaning the temple and all of the stuff that went with it. He was putting an end to that because the reality, Christ and the Spirit of God dwelling in his people, that had actually come. The temple is no longer necessary. And it will never be necessary again. The Jews of Jesus' day largely rejected their Messiah. Not all of them. John was a Jew. But they largely rejected the Messiah as a nation. They rejected His sacrifice and God removed the temple from the earth because the sacrifice of His Son rendered it completely unnecessary. Unnecessary. And here's my argument for why I don't believe that the dispensationalists get this right. For future Jews to rebuild a temple would be a further rejection of Christ's death and would thereby be an act of idolatry. And I know that's strong language. And you may disagree with that, and that's fine. I don't believe it would be an act of genuine worship. I believe that the dispensationalist position represents a revival of an old covenant temple and sacrificial system which Christ abolished forever. So if you hold to that view, okay, you've got some questions to ask and answer. And so do I. I get that. But I, I think that this vision is telling us that we should not be expecting a new earthly temple to be built in the future in Jerusalem. Rather, this is a reference to the true temple that exists today as all of those who trust in Christ by faith. That's what this vision is all about. The temple in Revelation 11 is a symbolic reference to the church because that is now the place on earth where God's Spirit dwells and it will be the place on earth where God's Spirit dwells until Christ returns. Now where I do agree with dispensationalists is that the measuring of the temple is symbolic of God's protection over his people. I believe that the measuring here is similar to the meaning of the sealing of believers back in Revelation 7. Do y'all remember that? If you're visiting with us and you haven't been with us in this study, then I'm going to say things that you haven't heard. But for those of you who have been in this study, you remember back in chapter 7 when God tells the four winds to wait and he seals all his believers and he seals us to protect us from the judgment that he's going to unleash? And even from the judgment that's going to come or the the persecution that's going to come from the world, I think that a Revelation 11 is a recapitulation of that idea. And God is measuring us because he wants to know every one of us, and he's going to protect us. He's not going to remove us from it, but the persecution that comes, we're going to endure it because, like we sang earlier, he's going to hold us fast. So, what are we going to take away from this one verse about the temple? couple of things. Christ coming into the world abolished the ceremonial law. It put an end to the buildings, the altars, the priests, the vestments, the sacrifices, the incense, and the other symbolic elements of Old Testament worship. Now the true temple is the church of Jesus Christ. That is the teaching of the New Testament, and it's the teaching of the Revelation. And as believers, we are living stones of a new temple in which God dwells. That's what Revelation 11 is about. Not a reconstructed Jewish temple in Jerusalem, but the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the measuring of the temple is a symbol of God's protection, his promise to protect us, his people, during the church age as the true children of God who worship Christ, we're going to be safeguarded by the Spirit so that we can endure the tribulation and the persecution that this world throws at us. And we see that in the picture of the two witnesses doing what Christ called us to do and then dying as a result, but being resurrected and taken to heaven. But we'll get there in about six weeks. Okay, last thing. Verse 2. What about those outside the temple? Look at Uh, the trampling of the courts. John is told, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. That is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. The same protection that is extended towards believers, the spiritual protection of God over His people, that same protection is not given to unbelievers. It's not. In this verse, God is making a clear distinction between His people and everyone else. John is commanded not to measure the outer court because it has been given over to the nations to be trampled for 42 months, a very specific period of time. And this is a reference to the unbelievers in the world who are not placed under God's divine protection. This is a reminder that unbelievers will face the due penalty for their sin. The judgment of God is coming, and when it comes, there will be no protection for them. They will be afforded no shelter on the day of judgment. If they have rejected God's Messiah, therefore God will refuse to allow them to enter into the temple. That's why they're in the outer portion. He's not going to let them into his presence because the only way to come into the presence of God is through Christ. Now, when Herod built the temple uh, that stood in the first century, when Herod built that temple, there was an outer court and that outer court was divided up into three parts. Are you all familiar with this? Some of you are, some of you are not. So the temple structure itself uh, had a place outside where the priests were. That was one of the courts. And then if you go into the temple, you have the holy place and then the most holy place. And only the high priest could enter the most holy place. And there were very specific priests that could go into the holy place and offer incense and things like that. Now outside of that court, there was another court. Uh, And it was divided into three different parts. The the court of the, the priest, and then the court of Israelite men was outside of that, and then the court of women. And even outside of that, there was a court for Gentiles, and there was a sign that said, if any Gentile comes past this barrier, you've taken your life into your own hands because we're going to destroy you. You've come too close to the holiness of God. So Herod's temple had all of these different courts associated with it. But when John speaks of the outer court, there's no graduated access. Why? Because in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. Slave nor free, male nor female, everyone has the same access. And so for John, in this understanding of the church as the temple, he's saying, look, if you're part of this, if you're up at the temple, at the altar, and you're worshiping, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek or slave or free or male, it doesn't matter. The court system is no longer in play. It's those who are in the the holy of holies and those who are outside. And that's the language that's being used here. And so when when John is told, don't measure them because the protection of God is not afforded to unbelievers who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. The distinction being made here between those who worship near and those who dwell in the outer court, it has to do with whether or not they are followers of Christ. Those in the outer court are part of the world. They love the things of the world. They love the world. They have rejected the Son and therefore they have no access. Okay, last thing. There's there's a lot more here. I'm not going to cover all of it. But what about this reference to the holy city? Are are any of you thinking about Breck's sermon or lesson last week on Zion? The language of holy city, the language of Zion, is always a reference to the place where God dwelt with his people. Right? And so this language of holy city, this expression holy city, it's used throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament to refer to Jerusalem, to refer to Zion, because it was the site of God's temple, therefore it was the place where God dwelled on earth. There's something we need to understand about the word holy in that phrase holy city. The city was holy because God dwelled there. The city's not holy on its own. It's just a patch of dirt. When God's Spirit abandoned the temple in Ezekiel, there was no longer anything holy about it, even though the temple was still there. Does that make sense? Jerusalem is not holy on its own, nor was the temple holy on its own. God's presence makes the place holy, and if God is not dwelling there, there is nothing particularly special about it. It is not the place that makes God holy, but it's God's presence that makes the place holy. And and if you've never heard this concept before, I would direct you back to Acts chapter 7, because Stephen one of the deacons and one of the first the first christian martyr he preached that very sermon to the jews of that day and he said this temple over here is not holy because it's there it's holy because god dwells there and they stoned him for that because they were so attached to a building and a city and they were so confused blinded by the reality of what Christ had come to do that they stoned one of the saints of God who actually got to see a vision of God and the the Son standing beside the throne when he died. You can go back and read about that. After Christ died outside the city of Jerusalem, the expression holy city is not used in the New Testament until we see it in the Revelation. Why? Part of the reason for this is that at Pentecost, when the Spirit of God came down, guess what? He did not fill the temple in Jerusalem. He filled the people of God. Why? Because we are now the temple. I believe that the reference to the holy city here is a reference to spiritual Jerusalem, that spiritual place where the born-again believers in Christ are... Come together to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. I agree with what Breck taught last week. We are a new Zion. We are the new holy city. And what John is saying here is that the people in the outer court, the the nations have been given authority to trample upon the holy city. In other words, brothers and sisters, when we stand and we desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, guess what? We will be persecuted. When we stand to proclaim the word of God that is sweet to us but bitter to the world, we will face tribulation. And that's what this vision is telling us. And it's going to happen for 42 months. Now, I know it's 1210. I'm not going to try to explain 42 months today. I will say this. What it helps us to understand is that God places a limit on what he's going to allow to happen to his church. He says, you're given a time. They're going to preach. You're going to do what you do. But you know what? When the time comes, I'm drawing a line and that's it. And during that entire time, guess what? Even though we face tribulation and persecution, God's protection is still resting over us. In chapters 12 and chapters 13, the same period of time three and a half years, I mean, uh, 42 months, three and a half, yeah, um, that 1,260 days. That is given to the, the dragon's attempt to destroy the church. So in general, it's talking about a designated time that God has allowed the enemy to persecute the church. But all the while, the church will, will be under the protection of the Lord. When I come back in August, we'll talk about that, okay? All right, I'm going to finish this up. Um, the measuring of the sanctuary and, in part, the invincibility of the two witnesses until they do what God called them to do, that's a picture of God's promise that he will not let anything separate us from his love. That does not mean that we're going to be completely taken out of the world. He's not going to spare us from all tribulation. But he is going to keep our faith strong and secure us through that suffering until the very end. As we close, I want to ask perhaps the most important question. I know we got some theologues in the room. We like to think deeply about all this stuff. Uh, Some of you are thinking, what in the world? I've never thought like this before. I have no idea what's going on here. You came to church. That's what we do. But here's the most important question. Are you inside or are you outside of God's sanctuary? Are you trusting in Christ's sacrifice to save you from sin? Or have you put your hope in your own self-salvation mission? Have you abandoned the world's idea of what it means to be religious and embrace what the gospel says about our only hope being faith in Christ alone? That's the question. Are you part of the true temple of God because you have repented of sin and are clinging to Christ with the empty hands of faith? Or are you still on your own trying to make your way to God? Within the temple, there was this very thick and beautiful veil that separated and protected the Holy of Holies from everything else because the Holy of Holies was the place where God dwelt. And it wasn't protecting God from us. It was protecting us from God. Now the veil shut everybody out except for the high priest, and the high priest would come in once a year into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement to do what God had commanded him to do, to make atonement for the people But when Jesus died on the cross, you may remember this, that veil separating God from sinful man, that veil was torn from top to bottom, a symbol that God did it, and he did it to open the way into access to God because of what Christ had accomplished on the cross. And it happened, according to the the Gospels, at the moment when Christ said, it is finished. Because that temple structure and everything that went along with it was pointing forward to him. And once it had done its job, it is no longer necessary. Because now it's all about Jesus. He's the one who has opened the way to God. You don't need to wait for a new temple to be rebuilt. You simply need to embrace Christ as the Savior who cleanses you from sin and brings you back into God's presence. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this truth. And though it is challenging, though it is difficult, and though it is deep in its understanding and its application, Lord, I pray that our time here today was not just spent so that we can wrangle over theological positions, but my hope and prayer is that we can walk from this place having a better understanding of what your word Teaches us. Because it's in your word that we find life and and hope and direction. It's in your word where you communicate your truth to us. So help us to hold fast to the truth of your word. And help us to be comforted by it and directed by it. And for those among us who have not yet put their hope in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would open their hearts and their minds to see their need of a Savior because they are sinners like the rest of us. And Christ is the only Savior that you have provided to forgive us and bring us back into your presence. So would you open their hearts to receive the Lord today? I pray in Jesus' name, amen.